You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. We do. We sing gospel, we sing country, we sing rock, reggae, we sing ballads. If we could, we'd do opera, you know. We just like all sorts of music. Our sound has been our harmony. That's, that's our thing, you know. We just enjoy harmonising together. This event was presented as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program. Well, it's been a particularly difficult couple of weeks for First Nations people across this land that we refer to as Australia. And um, today we're congregating on the stolen lands of the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation to engage in storytelling. And uh, music and culture is a deeply embedded part of the stories of this land, stories that go back 60,000 plus years years and I'd like to respectfully acknowledge and pay my respects to the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung elders, past and present, and also pay my respects to their descendants. Sovereignty has never been ceded on these lands and waters, and a reminder that we move every single day on what always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I'd also like to extend my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from other communities who are in the audience today to hear from the powerful vocal duo, singers, songwriters and now published authors, Vicar and Linda Bull, talking about their wonderful memoir, No Bull. And today's event is part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of big ideas, which is on now until Friday, the 11th of November. It's supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership, and the official bookseller for this series is Readings, so audience members who've pre-purchased a book with their ticket can collect it from the bookseller after this event, and Vicar and Linda will also be signing copies of the book in the salon upstairs following this session. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Malolele. Malolele Nimila. Malolele. Now, congrats on your memoir, Noble. I have to say, it resonated so hard as an island girl growing up in the suburbs from back in the day. And we'll get to more of that later. I guess the logical question to start off with is 35 years in the music industry. Why now to release a memoir? You're the boss, you go first, Vic. <laughs> um, we were approached by a firm press to write a book. Um, Linda, Linda's good at writing. I'm not so great. I was very hesitant um, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to tell our story. Um, so I got a, they had to talk me around a bit. So it wasn't really our idea. We were approached and, and I'm sort of glad that Linda talked me around to doing mm. it. I mean, I thought, yeah, 35 years, we have been in the industry for a long time. Long we time. have been on a bit of a journey. Maybe we can give a few of our secrets away. Mm. Linda, what was the process like of writing the book? Did you actually sit down and do it together? No, we did the opposite. Um, well, it began three years ago, so what happened was Vicar just decided to write in her own private space and I was the same. And we thought the best way to be honest and, and free is to not talk about what we were writing about. So I didn't know what Vicar was writing about and she didn't know what I was writing about until much later in the piece when then we discovered 
we had written about the same things. So they basically put the two together and edited it down. But it's because it's a shared life, we, we have the same situations but different memories of them and I think that's what's an interesting thing that came out. We're just so connected yeah. that that's what happened. I, I mean, because I was going to ask you what it was like um, when you would sit down together and think about stories from throughout your life, what it was like comparing recollections. And because and, oftentimes two people, right, can be in the same situation, but you come away with very different observations of what's gone down. Uh, what, we were pretty accurate, weren't we? Wow. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. We, um, we kind of remembered... We didn't remember things differently, did nope. we, too often? Yeah, which was amazing. It was, uh, except some things I forgot. Um, mm. I had to trigger because memory. I mean, I think lot, well, yes. in, in the music industry, I guess, it's so fast-paced that unless you've got the, the memory of an elephant, you can't, I can't remember dates, times, venues, the names of them, you know, who we met. It's very hard to kind of be accurate. So from our point of view, we kind of brushed over that and it's a behind the scenes behind the scenes tale more than it is who we met and what happened you know what i found so interesting was you both grew up in donny in doncaster but i love that your tongan culture was so present you know whilst you were growing up tell us about the music that you were hearing through church which is a very common thing for pacific islanders well it was the tongan choir um, every sunday uh, singing in church, they're hymns, you know. And but but when the Tongans sing those hymns, it's on another level, yeah. because yes. you know they're they're choir, their harmonies are so rich and full, and they really sing like they really believe, because they are very devout. You know, Tongans are very religious. They go to church maybe four times a week. So when they sing, I mean, they practice all week. So they mm. practice, they're always at choir practice and then they get in into church and then they just Let sing their hearts out and it's very spiritual and it's very uplifting, it's very moving. So we, we got that every Sunday. Wow. Mm. And we didn't realise sort of the education we were getting. We, yeah. I mean, that's just it. I mean, clearly the Tongan church was a very formative part of your musical education, but I didn't realise it was actually your mum who really schooled you in music and performance. When you reflect on that, what did your mum teach you uh, during those early years? Well, mum, mum taught us... She first of all recognised that Vicar had a higher voice than I had a lower one. And then she thought, okay, well, I can teach them. That's a ready-made harmony. So she taught us how to sing in harmony. So she would sing the melody to Vicar and then teach me the harmony and then we'd put them together. And that was the first lesson we had. And then she became critical and thought, okay, who's singing off? Like she, she'd listened in the car or she'd listened on long family trips. She'd listened when we were lying on the ground watching television and singing along to every single ad that we could think of. She'd be in the kitchen going... Someone's not, someone's not sticking to the part. No, you've dropped down too far. So it was a constant tutoring in how to sing in harmony and how to sing in tune. In tune. Yeah. You know, I've never heard the term blood harmony before and I came across it in your book. Can you explain this term? Yeah. Um, it's the, the, the relationship, the family, the, the sibling harmony. That's what blood harmony is. It's, well, that's how I put it anyway. Mm. Um, which is a different sound 
to two strangers. We have uh, a blend, I think, that is unique and all families have that. Mm. And, you know, you look at like Tim and Neil Finn, when they sing together, it's magic. You know, um, there's plenty of people uh, off the top of my head. But when you hear them, when, when families sing together, it's, it's a different sound. I don't know. And I think it's got to do with, with um, the shapes of our mouths and our resonating chambers and things. We're very similar because we come from the same parents. So we're going to have that natural, beautiful blend. I love that you use the word blend because it's not only in music, it's also in terms of culture as well, right? Existing between a couple of different cultures. And I want to stay in those early years. Uh, you both mentioned in Noble that you hadn't realised that you were different to other kids until you, until you started kindergarten um, and primary school. And you were teased for having dark skin, um, being treated differently by teachers. You know, it's so telling because I really related to what you said, but that even at our big ages, we can still remember the indignities of, and, and the terrifying feeling of what happens during those moments of racism. What was it like for you both recalling and I guess reliving those incidents? I, it was quite painful. I, I got upset writing about what happened at kindergarten because really I did not know. My favourite thing to do was to hang out with the family and but I did get an inkling what it was like when we would step out in public with mum because you could see people were treating her differently and it was quite painful to write about. I got upset but I thought it was helpful for me to realise that to, the, to then think back about why I'm here now and I, re, I, I see the path. I see that when you make someone feel like that, they, they can react a number of different ways and they can retreat or they can go and meet it head on, which is what our mother did. And it made me more ambitious and more wi willing to kind of not fail. And I think that that's been a really good thing, becoming a singer, because I just don't like it when someone tells me I can't do something or that I'm less than. I try harder. Mm. And... Um, hard lesson but it was difficult to write about yeah mm. because the thing is you know racism can often fill victims with shame and you end up denying the very parts of yourselves that are so crucial right mm -hmm. to who you are including sometimes denying your own family and how did this play out for you Vicar, with your Tongan grandfather well yes I was very um uh embarrassed about being half Tongan and when he came to visit, um, to meet us, I think I was about oh, six, seven years old, he, um, he turned up to school to pick me up from school, walked me home and I just, you know, I copped it at school as well. And when all my friends saw him standing at the school gate, dressed like a Tongan man going to church in all his traditional, he dressed up, he looked absolutely beautiful. He wore a tupenu, he wore his talvala, which is like a mat, and around that, mum had cut our hair and made a belt for him out of our hair, which she wove beads and pearls into, and that was holding up the mat, and he had his beautiful shirt on, and it was just a really terrible time for me. I was just so ashamed, walked past him and wouldn't acknowledge him, and then got home through, walked through the front door and um, continued to blast my mother and said to her, how dare you, how dare you, I can't believe you did that to me. Because then it just, re it just confirmed to everyone at school 
you know, that, yeah, okay, she's different. And, yep. yeah, so we wanted yeah, to fit it wasn't in. a good day. Yeah. We wrote Grandpa's song as an, as an apology. Yeah. I guess the flip side is, right, when you are so visibly different within a particular space, mm. there are those rare moments when actually um, the way you look isn't the central part of how people identify, identify you and connect with you. And you ended up going to Tonga when you were kids, being surrounded by family and faces that look like yours. So you're not the only black or brown face in a space. I mean, describe the feeling of going to Tonga for that very first time and what your impressions were, like just seeing a sea of faces which ended up being family, greeting you at the airport and not having to think about, uh, not having to navigate and negotiate racism. You. Well, it was wonderful. It was like, oh... You know, and I, I want to acknowledge Dad as well in this because yes. our father is, he's, a, we, we, he's Australian, he's blonde, he's blue-eyed, his parents came from England, but he was very welcoming to the Tongan people. He welcomed them into the home and really embraced the Tongan culture. And it was him that, that scrimped and saved and took us back to mum's country. He said, you have to go home and you have to learn all about your mother's culture. That's what we're going to do. And that was at 10 years of age. You learn the language, you learn the custom, and you understand why your mother is and treats you the way she does, because she's very, very strict. Um, had us on a very tight leash. And so when we walked through the airport, there were all these beautiful brown faces with flowers in their hair, singing their ukuleles and and it was, it was great, you know, and the, just the whole atmosphere and the vibe, it was hot and, you know, everyone looked healthy and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they looked healthy in Doncaster too, don't get us wrong. <laughs> well, they had that glow, that coconut oil glow, you know. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It, you know, yeah, it was completely different. It blew our minds. You know, we're still talking about it. So it had some sort of lasting impression other than, you know, the visual... Uh, I think it was just Vivica and I it was like, yeah, we don't have to go to school and we can just hang out and be free, like really kind of like learn what it is to have a cool childhood without the strict structure of school. Yeah. Mm. So, um, you know, I guess I want to uh, take it right back to when you started seeing, I'm going to be jumping to different phases of your life here, but, you know, there's lots of music fans who are in the audience today and I'm going to jump ahead a few years now to adulthood, Vicar, because when it started for you where you're like, okay, wow, I've been singing with mum and my sister, but then there's a moment where Rebecca Barnard, you know, walks into a studio and, and gets you to join. Can I get you to explain that? Yeah, I was working, um, when I left school, I got a job in a recording studio, Platinum Recording Studios in um, Chapel Street in South Yarra. One of my friend's father owned the recording studio and I was the night receptionist and Rebecca Barnard um, from Rebecca's Empire had come in to do a session um, and her her singing partner had lost her voice and they're like, oh, okay, um, okay. And then all my friends who also worked at Platinum, uh, we, all, we all had jobs, we, we all hung out together. They said, oh, Vicar can sing. And I went, oh. well, I, I'd never sung in a studio and I hadn't sung in public actually. I'd only ever sort of just, I'd sing in my flat to my friends along to the radio and they said, yeah, Vicar can sing. And Rebecca said, Ah, oh, okay, you want to come sing with me, Vicar? And I said, uh, I, I didn't want to because I'd never done it before. But my friends really encouraged me and, and Rebecca was really fantastic. She took me in, held my hand and just was very supportive. 
and I, I have I have to thank her for that very much because she because she was very you know unselfish you know she mm. she was young and she was willing to share and 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 help uh, someone that had never done it before and sort of open the door for them as well. Linda, what was it like for you the very first time that you saw Vika performing live on stage? Uh, well, I was surprised. I didn't know. I knew. I knew Vicka could sing. I, I, you know, I grew up with Vicka yeah. singing. I, that wasn't a surprise. But the power and the change in her personality was the thing that shocked me the most. That, you know, she sang "Respect." It wasn't the Aretha Franklin song "Respect," so it wasn't exactly an easy song. But I think you know we were all nailed to the wall with just the change in her, and because Vicka's quite shy, reserved behind the scenes. You know, she's kind of not a as loud as I am or kind of, you know, in your face as I am and quite calm. But on stage, she's a completely different person. And that was the first time I saw it when we all just went, I know, this is not going to... She's not going to be working at reception at Platinum Studios for very long. (laughs) (laughs) And so you were studying to become an arts teacher? Yes. Yeah, I went to Melbourne Uni straight out of school. I graduated VCE and went straight to university so, you know, polar opposite to Vic and was studying to be an art teacher. Mm. So how did it come to be then that you started performing together officially? It's Vic's fault. Hey? <laughs> I wasn't very good at what I was doing. I realised I wasn't great at my course and everyone else was better at it than me and I was complaining to Vicka once over uh, Sunday lunch and, and Vic said, well, you know, why don't you just come and sing with me? And I went, OK, OK. And I did. And that's it. And that's, where, that's where it started. So what? it felt easy. It, it felt easier than trying to learn how to draw a circle for five hours. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I knew that how to sing. You know, I, and we'd done it together. So when we when we sang, I mean, the first time I sang wasn't terrific. I've got to be honest, it was pretty disastrous. But I went. Can you back. tell us about that? <laughs> okay, there's a venue in uh, in in Melbourne back in those days called Subterrain, and it was kind of a cool cool venue. We were, bands would play and uh, Vicka was singing in her own band called the Blue Tomatoes and guest singing with a band called the Bachelors from Prague and we both worked at the at the Black Cat uh, making coffees there and horrible onion you know burning everything basically and um, Henry Mars the owner of the Black Cat said to Vic if you can your sister sing and she said yeah and he said well why don't you guys get up and do a duet and and together um, the next time we play at Subterrain and Vic said, okay, and Henry suggested that we sing the Nancy Sinatra and, and Frank Sinatra duet, uh, duet Something Stupid. And, um, you know, that seemed easy for me because I thought it was a... We learnt it. I knew you had, a, you know, the moving parts of that song. My part was easy because was harder. She was more experienced, so that made sense. But um, Vic said to me, you know, whatever you do, this is my first time, don't... Calm your nerves, but don't drink. Don't. Whatever you do, don't don't drink. And um, unfortunately, I didn't listen. <laughs> I raced out to the Datsun 120Y and got, had half a bottle of whiskey and completely stuffed up the performance. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think from that day onwards I really drank much before a show ever again. It was After a good it was, it, was, story. it was a really good lesson. That's right. You know. I still, I'm still embarrassed. 
but this is the thing, I guess, in the, as I was reading the book, I'm thinking, you know, your presence in the Australian music scene today is very powerful and poignant, especially for young artists of colour coming through in the music scene. They've, they've got folks like you to look to. 35 years ago, I'm wondering, who were you able to, to look at? Bob Marley? Well, you know who helped us early on was Vanetta Fields. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So when, but when we were watching TV, Marsha Hines. Yeah. Uh, but w- it's pretty thin on the ground. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but when when we started, I remember one of our first sessions was with Vanetta Fields, who mm. I don't know if everybody knows who Vanetta is, but she's a great singer. She was an iket. She, was, she sang for backing vocals for Aretha Franklin. She came out here with Boz Skaggs, very experienced singer. So it was wonderful to have her as one of our teachers and, and she taught us a lot. Yeah, she was instrumental in getting us to work quickly in the studio because we had no idea in the studio you have to work fast and she didn't muck around. She was very brutal and very honest and really kind at the same time because she's like, come on, girls, you know, this is how you do it. Now do it. And, and we... we we, we did it, yeah. I mean, I really love that she obviously saw something there and I imagine part of what she would have seen is just the breadth of your talent. I mean, it's soul music, it's gospel, it's, you know, a little bit of country, it's rock. I mean, how did you go about working out what your musical direction would be? Oh, oh we're still working that out. <laughs> it's hard when you can sing a lot of different styles yes. and there's two people and then having to bring those you know, the, the personalities to, together and, and your choices together. It's taken us a long time to figure out and I think it's just recently on our last record, The Weight, that we kind of found our own sound. Uh, but also, you know, we've still got a lot more to do. We still want to explore our Tongan roots and and the, the language of our culture and maybe, you know, you know, do side projects like that. It's, there's a lot of stuff we can do because it's very... I mean, Belter, she's a sort of ballsy, mm. you know, more rock singer and I'm more of a country singer, so that's why it was confusing. Mm. I think, yeah, people have had kind of... We've given them a lot of... It's like, it's true. It's like, well, we do. We sing gospel, we sing country, we sing rock, um, reggae, we sing ballads, you know. If, if we could, we'd do opera, you know. You know, it's like, it's just... We just like all sorts of music and I think... it our thing has just been our sound has been our harmony that's that's our thing you know we just enjoy harmonizing together and i think as that as we're getting older we're liking that more and more singing together like that sound i mean that's what we've always worked towards in Amelo, that the harmony that that's our thing and so yeah i think because we like to sing it's like yeah well we'll just sing everything yeah yeah. We're not a marketer's dream. No. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I feel sorry for our record company. But, yeah. <laughs> but that's so true. I mean, the harmony thing is your thing. And to me, I mean, I, you know, I say this as someone who is not a singer in any way, shape or form. It is such a complex science to me, how you know how to fall into unison with one another. And you were sort of explaining at the back, Linda, how you explain it, right? Yeah, I always use my fingers. So when I try to explain harmony to people that don't know, I say, okay, so here's the melody, 
Vicky usually sings it or I do. And then on, on, the, on layered on the top is the high harmony. Then I'll come in underneath. And in parts of the songs, we're doing this all the time. Four part, three part, two part. Then she goes into unison. I'll join her. It's like that. It's We know when to, to serve the song and use as many harmonies or as li little harmony as possible to make the song come alive. Yeah. yeah. Breathe life into that, it. That's the instinct that we have. It's, uh, it's our own type of harmony, but not everyone's the same, are they, Vic? Yeah, everyone's different. Yeah, but we, we, we work hard on it. I mean, it's not easy. It's, it's some days, you know, we'll spend all day trying to figure out the harmonies, you know, because it's a taste thing, mm. you know. It's like sometimes you don't really need to sing it. Sometimes unison sounds better. So, yeah. you know, we always try those sort of different things. It's, it's, and, but then, you know, when, when, when the harmony does come in, it's like gives the song a real lift. Yeah. You know, it makes it really beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's, that, that is just as much work as actually singing. It's figuring out when and when not to do it. And it's just so the ways that your soul just gets lifted and you just soar on this, you know, totally different plane. I imagine that would happen because I get this when I'm in Papua New Guinea, when you do hear the harmonies back home in the islands as well. There's something about that too. Did you learn a lot about harmonies even when you were in Tonga? Well, we, we listened to it a lot. Yeah. I think that was the thing is that we, we, we listened to it a lot and... And what was so joyous, though, about listening to it was that everyone would join in. It didn't matter if, if people sang off or couldn't sing. They just did it anyway, you know, and, and got buried in with the, you know, by the singers that could. <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. sort of another little trick, too. If you're not sure, just... <laughs> and then someone will see, you know, Linda will cover it for me, sort of thing. I, I, I think <laughs> it's funny. You don't need much covering. Um, I... I didn't realise, I, I think I mentioned it to you, Namila, the harmony is sort of so entrenched in our, in our mind that we don't even need a melody, we can sing a harmony all the way through. And, yeah, I don't need it. It's, it's something that happened to our brains when we were growing up. Linda's Listen. better at it than I am. Linda's a much better harmony singer than me. Yeah. Yeah, right. Mm. But, but I, because so she was forced to. Yeah, she had to. Because yeah. I'm the oldest and so I gave myself the easier job and made her... <laughs> Do all the hard so lifting. True. That's yeah. So true. Yep. You know, and and reading uh, Noble. I mean, going from the suburbs in Doncaster to hitting stages all around the world, and you're performing alongside folks like Joe Camilleri, Paul Kelly, Uncle Archie Roach, Casey Chambers. I mean, the list goes on. For the both of you, who's the artist, or what's the show where you thought, "Hang on a minute, how on earth am I in the company of?" these people or this person? Which one? Which person? Yeah. Is there a particular, I mean... Yeah. I, well, there's, there's probably two. One would be um, Nelson Mandela and the other would be um, the Dalai Lama. Singing for or singing with? Yeah. Oh, singing well, sing, for. And, well, both, for and with. Hmm. But just, I mean, for me, it was, I had no idea about Iggy Pop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that was weird, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain that story? Because that was... Oh, Iggy Pop came, we went to um, Peter Gabriel from WOMAD. He started the whole WOMAD um, festival. He would invite artists to go back to England and record 
um, in his studio in Box. And we went to the perform at WOMAD in Reading and then we went and hung out at his um, beautiful studio for a week. And all the other artists that were on the WOMAD bill were invited as well. And the idea was that we would collaborate. And Linda and I were a bit out of our depth. We were pretty green and we're a bit shy to approach all the other artists that were there. People like, um, uh, can you name the artist, Lud? I can't remember. Oh, Mr. the drummers of Burundi or Nusrat yeah. Fateh Ali Khan and people yeah. that were amazing, world, you know, world-class kind of performers. And it's like, there's no way we're going to ask them. Oh, no, 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 no. So we just sort of hung out in our little corner, really, and um, we were doing a gig and still hadn't found anyone to, to collaborate with because we were going to go and record. And we were doing a show at Reading and uh, Iggy, Iggy Pop and Johnny Depp turned up to our show and were side of stage. And anyway, cut a long story short, we met them and mentioned that we hadn't had anyone to collaborate with. And Iggy goes, well, I'll do it. <laughs> and I know. Uh-huh, really? He goes, yeah, I'll do it. And he showed up the next day, true to his word, and came and sang on a song with us. Mm. And we did I Know Where to Go to Feel Good, a Paul Kelly song, and that was his part. I know where to go to feel good. <laughs> yeah, he didn't have to that, do that much. <laughs> that, that's all he did. And it was great. You know, he saved our asses. Mm. That's yeah. weird. I mean, it's, it's so weird. I think that one of the hardest things I have reconciling in, in our career over the years is we grew up watching Countdown. We mm. grew up um, fans of most of the people we've ended up working with, and it's really weird. It's still really weird when you're in the presence of someone who you idolised as a child and and listen to, or fans of, you know, Aussie bands, and you're just sitting next to them, you know, or going to their concert and sitting there listening to them or meeting them backstage. It still it sort of twists my tiny little brain. Totally. I don't know how we got here. Mm. I, I do, but I can't believe it. And, you know, some of these incredible experiences have made their way into your memoir. Mm. I am wondering, because it is a very honest and raw book that you've both written, how do you push through the fear of vulnerability to, ch- to share some of the more challenging moments as well? I mean, what's touched on in there is, you know, marriage breakdowns, um, you know, challenges around drinking, even not speaking to each other for a period of time. How did you decide what to include? I think the landmark parts of your life that were the hardest hmm. was not only the highs but the lows and I thought what are the lows what are the lows that I've been through that will be of interest to anybody that they didn't know about me that I can possibly explain why I am the way I am and that's how I chose those difficult things to touch on I I didn't think there'd be a benefit to anybody if they weren't explaining how I how I am the way I am and how we got to where we got to and our longevity and our love for each other Mm. Mm. That's how I chose mine. Well, I chose mine because um, drinking is so much part of the rock industry, the the music industry. It's always around us. That's why I had to talk about it because it was a problem for me. Yeah, because it was available. It was there six nights a week, free, you know, and not just, you know, a bottle of wine. It'd be a bottle of scotch, a bottle of vodka, two bottles of red, two bottles of white, you know, six nights a week. 
Mm. So, you know, and everyone knows that that's what happens. So it's like, yeah, well, I, and I, and I, and, and and so I had a great time, but it caught up with me, and and I had to talk about that. Yeah. But, yeah, because it's a trap. You know, uh, the part of the book actually that I think most resonated for me was, uh, which I found really beautiful, was the both of you sharing the struggles of early motherhood, because I think that's something that's often hidden and not spoken about a lot. And, you know, you can really feel isolated in those early days, but actually it's very common to, f- to know that you're struggling. Yeah. I, I mean, and and uh, motherhood, we know, is, is a beautiful thing. I don't want to talk about it as a deficit, but I actually want to know how becoming a mum... Um, I guess, created a shift or enhanced or changed your creativity? Well, that's right. I I struggled with becoming a mum. It wasn't easy. I wasn't a natural. I wasn't... um, But I love my baby, you know? And But it was like, I don't know how to do this. So, but she's been the best thing that ever happened to me, you know? And I know everyone says it, my children. But, you know, I got a good one, you know? She's not an (laughs) asshole. So I'm really happy, you know, and I think that's because I was the dickhead. So she watched what I did and went, okay, I'm not going to do that. And, and she's a, you know, she's a really great human being and I'm really grateful for that, you know, that I have a beautiful daughter. So if anything, she's made me, you know, a, a more compassionate person. Is she musically inclined at all? Yes, she is, but she's not. She doesn't do it for a living. Okay. No, no, she didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I I love being a mum. I watched Vicar's struggles. I didn't have the same difficulties that Vic had. Um, and I had my children kind of spaced out. But I think the thing I like about my kids is that they're, they've got my back. They're, you know, we've been through a lot together and they um, know how to look after themselves. They're used to the long um, absence, my long absences, but I always know that they're okay, they're right behind me and I'm right behind them and I'm very proud of them, very, very proud of them, mm-hmm. yeah, who, who they've become. Mm. Yeah, and they'd be so proud of the both of you as well because you're both so loved in and across music and the arts in this country and I'm wondering what do you think has been the key to your longevity in an industry that can be quite cutthroat? Well, I think... <laughs> I don't think we've tried to be cool. I think we've just been ourselves. We haven't tried to follow trends. And I think that's limiting. I think we figured that out early in the piece uh, that just be good. Yeah, uh, I think so. I, I, I often wonder, yeah, we have been in this industry for a long time and I think it's just uh, having the, the two of us together is, is it's unique. It's, you know... Um, I think maybe that's why, and like Linda said, we don't tend to follow trends. We just, we're singers. We're not, you know, we're not up there bloody modelling the latest thing while we sing or doing whatever. It's just the thing for us is the voice. It's, that's the, the, the most important thing. And, you know, we've had our highs, we've had our lows. It's been up and down. Like Linda said, one minute we're cool, next minute we're not, you know. But we don't care. It's, it's our joy of singing. Mm. Mm. And you both kind of took a break uh, in various ways outside of the music scene for a bit there. Do you feel that that helped, having a, just stepping back from it yes. for a bit? Yeah. I think any job, it's good to stop and smell the roses and think, well, why, am I, why did I, 
what am I good at and what am I really bad at? And I was bad at a lot of things. Like, I could only, I didn't know if I could do anything. I thought, oh, I can't just be a singer until I'm 70, can I? Can I do anything else? I mean, I had to prove it to myself that mm. I could. And I, I did. I ran a shop and ran a business and had a, a creative life outside of music for about, you know, six to ten years. Um, Vic and I still sang a bit, but I, you know, I needed to know whether I could survive outside of music. And I think yeah. it's really good to know. And then I, you know, I missed it too much. and I could survive, but I didn't, it wasn't good for my heart. Mm. I went back. What about for you, Vic? Me, I didn't really want to have a break. Um, uh, but I did, and I went back and um, because I'm, I went to, I was a legal secretary, so I went back and did that while Linda was um, running the shop, um, retail, and that wasn't for me. So I much prefer the office and the, um, the, the procedure and everything, you know, working in a law firm, and I, I love that. So I did that for a while. That was good. I met some lovely... Linda and I met great people, you know, different people. Mm. We got out of the music industry and met completely different people. And that was fantastic. Yeah, because, you know, you get... You, get, you talk about yourself a lot. Yeah. In, you know, the focus is on you a lot. People look at you a lot. You're talking about yourself a lot. It's always me, me, me. It's not a great way to be 100% of the time. Mm. You have to have a break from that. Mm. And the people that we... When we took that break, they taught us a lot. Like, they taught us things that we use now in our career, you know. Like, like how to wrap a present. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're I'm good kidding. at that. But, you know, just things like, you know, organisational skills and things like that. And, you know, you know, I'm a very fast typist and I can do shorthand and, and you know, and, you know, keep things organised. So I sort of handle, you know, make sure that, you know, bills are paid and things like that. And no, that's Lin- true. Linda's great at sort of the, how the album cover should look, you know. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> That's true, you know. Anything else? <laughs> yeah. No, I think the organisational skills and that legal secretary brain have come in very handy with, uh, our, in our career. Yeah. Mm. I know that you both said before that, you know, the popularity thing is not that important to you, but can we just take a minute? Mm. Because releasing three albums during a pandemic when the biggest achievement for me was just putting on pants during the day (laughs) and then you're putting out albums. (laughs) Tell me where the creativity, like the creativity stopped and died for so many people during COVID, you know? I can't explain it. Just that you, I mean, wow. Wow, three albums, well, not we, even songs, albums. Hmm. I'll tell you one thing that was good about being in the doldrums and coming back again is that we realised sort of what we we needed a team, right? So we got this fantastic team, this fantastic manager that really whipped us into shape. And one, you know, so she's we call her our third bull sister. Um, well, she is now. She's our. We're a trio behind the scenes. We're not a, you know, duo in public, but trio behind the scenes. And she really kicked us into gear and said, "Right, this is what you got to do." And yeah, Lisa Palermo, Lisa Palermo. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Changed, changed our lives. She changed our lives. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. As did our record company. I think you need a good like because they're, you know behind the scenes and a record company that allows you to be true to yourself, but tells you that you're not doing the right thing as well. Um, but I think creatively, when everyone lost everything, Vic and I realised that we, we, we didn't need 
all the traps and trimmings of singing are great, but what we really do well is just sing like we used to sing together opposite each other in our little room. We could do that in and lockdown. Sunday sing-alongs. Yes. The way, did you expect that it would grow the way it did? No. Especially not being particularly, you know, like when it comes to digital or social media, you're saying you're not very active with it, but that just blew up. Yeah. That was a shock. Yeah. It was, it was an eye-opener, actually. It was, okay, this is what everyone's talking about, you know. I didn't even know what trending meant, you know. It's like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're true. Only three years ago and whatever, but... Didn't realise that it was such a powerful tool, that it was very, very handy. And and we just thought a couple of people would watch our little song on the porch that Sunday up above my head. And, you know, the Tongans will see it, the family will see it back home. And, it, yeah. I never thought that it would be a tool that... We, I mean, I, I could see what was happening for other people and how effective it was, but I never once imagined that it would... Would happen to it would us. happen to us. That people nah. would tune in, yeah. What did you observe? Why do you think it ended up just growing the way that it did? What, what do you think the city needed? What did what needed? the sense of connection? Just, yeah. Uh, what yeah, you, no, I think it, because it was a gospel song, it was uplifting, every, we were all going through this thing where we, we, weren't, we, not, we weren't really sure what was happening, what was going on. It was like, this is weird, you know. And then Lisa said, just do one song, one song, you know, don't hang around for too long and we thought okay gospel we'll do a gospel song and that was perfect you know and so we decided from then on we'll do something uplifting that will you know lift us all up and maybe you know bring a bit of joy for three minutes and then go home and that was just the perfect thing yeah Yeah. I think it was the that's right just the the the, the essence of it was sharing Mm. and I think that's we got that because people got were waiting. Well, we get, we get, I think the thing we're proudest of is that we get recognised and, and thanked for that everywhere we go. Yeah. And, you know, we've done a lot of stuff, but that being the thing that people remember and thank us for is really... It's nice when really people thank us. It's yeah. really it lovely really that good. they liked it. They were part of it. You know, it wasn't just us. us. It was a thing that we had going with everybody. Totally. Um, We've only got a few more minutes left, but in writing your book, who are you most nervous about reading it? Uh, my ex-husband. <laughs> I mean, is there a process with that? Do you have the conversation and say, listen? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Has to find these things for himself. But I think it, it's the reality. The reality is that, you know, these things happen. It's my point of view. And I have to be careful about my children. So I did go there and, um, you know see me in court then <laughs> no it'll be fine it'll be fine but he was the one Vicka <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> who you who were you most nervous about reading the book, um, if at all if anyone um mum mum I, Linda and I didn't give mum the book until the day before it was released <laughs> she wasn't yeah. allowed to read it she kept asking we're like nah Oh, I was just nervous because I, you know, write about taking drugs and um, mm. I, you know, I never told her that I took drugs. I just told her I drank alcohol. Alcohol is a drug, of course, but mm. I didn't tell her that I, I yeah. tried nearly every drug under the sun. And so uh, I thought, oh, how's she going to take this? And, but she said, she said, look, you're very honest. That's okay. 
very honest. I said, well, yeah, it happened. So, you know, I'm here. I'm not addicted to... That's right. I'm not, well, yeah. you know, I'm, I've given up drinking, so what more do you want? Mm. She said to us, she said, I come across as very bossy. <laughs> I come across as very strict. Mm. I'm like, yep. <laughs> and Dad comes across very nice. I was like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what has been the most fulfilling part of writing your book, No Bull? I, I think is um, for me, it's agreeing to do it, committing to it, and then actually finishing it. And I had, you know, we had a lot of support, and I think um, I'm really proud of the fact that we actually did it because I thought that there was a time there when we weren't writing anything, and um, a lot of encouragement is really. We, we really appreciate the fact that we got to tell our story, you know. If people read it, that's great. If they don't, that's fair enough. But um, so it's like our story that we have a life lived together. I'm really proud to have done that. Yeah. I'll be honest with you, Nabila. I was... Um, I'm just really happy that... Um, I just didn't think I could do it because I was... I never really wrote an essay at school. I just did everything I could not to do schoolwork. Yeah. And I didn't think I was capable of being able to string two sentences on a page together. So being, you know, having written my first chapter, I was like, hmm, okay, uh, it's pretty shit, but I'll keep going. <laughs> and I was really happy that I, that, you know, I was encouraged, you know, to keep going and and just believe in myself because I honestly didn't think I could do it. Mm. Wow. I mean, yeah, thank you so much for writing the book. It's a really beautiful memoir. So let's give a round of applause for Vicar and the book. Thank you, Namilla. Thank, thank you, you Namilla. Thank you so much for sharing stories Thanks, with us today. And I also want to give a very big thanks to the staff and crew at the Wheeler Centre for making this event happen. Head of Programming, Veronica Sullivan, Programming Manager, Jamila Codger, and Program Producer, the wonderful Lauren Taylor. And a huge and hearty thanks, of course, to Vicar and Linda's incredible manager, Lisa Palermo. And thank you to the numerous technical and support staff here at the Capitol Theatre. Props also to the Auslan interpreters for today, Nay King and Cindy Boycher. Thank you. That was Namilla Benson in conversation with Vicar and Linda Bull. It was recorded at the Capitol, Saturday, 5th of November, 2022. This event was presented in partnership with RMIT Culture. It was part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program, supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.